Support for WRFA is brought to you by Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union. As a local community resource, Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union is committed to providing its members with the professional financial services they have come to expect. Southern Chautauqua Federal Credit Union provides credit union membership to people who live, work, worship, attend school, do business, and any other entities within Chautauqua County. For more information, including how to become a member, call or text 716-665-7000 or visit them on the web at 665-7000.com. State Senator George Borrello and Assemblyman Andy Goodell shared their initial reactions to the 2022-23 state budget agreement that was still being voted on when they appeared via Zoom for the Chamber of Commerce's annual legislative breakfast on April 8th. Dunkirk Observer Editor Jack D'Agostino moderated the event. Well, good morning, and uh, it's an interesting perspective, isn't it, Andy? It is indeed. So uh, I, I feel like a Republican seeing you. Uh, uh, that's good, Jack. You should feel that way more often. Because uh, seeing you in Albany is like every Republican there. So close, but so far away. <laughs> so thanks for joining us in your busy schedule. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Uh, we'll kick it off with give us the latest on uh, what's going on with that $220 billion budget deal. Right. So uh, in the last two years, the uh, majority has increased the state budget from about 176 billion to just under 222 billion. So it's been a huge, huge increase in spending. Uh, the increase in spending has been driven uh, by two factors. Uh, last year, the uh, majority raised taxes by about $8 billion. And this year, uh, the state has received um, a lot of, I mean, billions and billions of dollars of federal stimulus funding. And so that's what's uh, funding this huge increase in spending. In terms of the overall budget, we typically have 10 to 12 budget bills. Uh, so far, we've voted on three. We have uh, briefed two more this morning. Um, I just got it off from a briefing and our Ways and Means staff is reviewing uh, another bill. So as soon as they're ready, I've got to get another briefing on another bill. Um, each one of these bills run anywhere from, you know, 40 or 50 pages. The largest I've seen are in the range of a thousand pages long. So it's a, it's a major, it's a major project to go through all these. So give us an update on that gas tax holiday. What what exactly are we going to expect from that? And I see. Well, wait a second. Let's let's cue in uh, Senator Borello. Good morning, George. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay. We can hear you. Can you give us an update on uh, how things are going for you today, since you're going to be in and out of meetings during this time span? How it's going? Poorly, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> actually, uh, you, you know, look, we we are here in Albany. Um, and uh, wish we could be there with all of you. I know Andy as well. We are doing our best uh, to try to navigate this budget. Uh, there are a total of about 10 bills. We've only seen three so far. Here it is Friday morning. Um, you know, the, uh, the real issue is, is that despite the fact that, you know, the, the Democrats do control every lever of government in New York State government, and they have super majorities in both houses, they still can't seem to get out of their own way. Uh, which is why we have the dysfunction we're seeing right now. 
unfortunately. That being said, uh, you know, we're going to probably work through the night uh, and maybe have a budget. But this is not in the best interest of the people of New York State because uh, we are getting what are called emergency uh, messages of necessity from the governor. And that allows her to bypass the constitutional requirement of having three days for us to review these massive budget bills before uh, they're voted on. Uh, in this case, we're talking hours. The first bill, we literally had less than 10 minutes to review before we had to vote on it. So uh, this is not the open and transparent government that Governor Hochul promised. Um, this is certainly not the government that the people of New York State should want. Um, and uh, But I will say that there are some good things. We, I think we had some victories in the revenue bill, things that myself and my colleagues have been fighting for for a long time were in the revenue bill. Some things that we fought against were taken out. Uh, so uh, I think Governor Hochul, at least, uh, is starting to understand that um, the policies that have been put forth by a relatively small group of, of people, special interests, are not in the best interest of New York State. Uh, and they are causing damage. So uh, I hopefully that gives me the hope that going forward, there will be some more common sense and cooperation. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully a government that better serves, or at least tries to better serve, the people of New York State. So one of your key issues is bail reform. Do you have an update on where that stands right now in this new plan? We've seen nothing so far. Again, this is a policy issue. As a 10-year veteran of county government, we should not be discussing policy issues in the budget. But they do that to provide cover for some of their members who can say, well, you know, look, it was part of a massive budget bill and I had to vote yes on it, uh, or I had to vote no on it, however it is. But the bottom line is, is that this is probably the biggest topic for New Yorkers everywhere from the tip of Long Island to the North Country. We've seen increases in crime, particularly in New York City, at massive levels uh, in the last, since this has been instituted. And quite frankly, 82% um, of New Yorkers believe that judges should have the discretion to hold someone based on dangerous, New York, dangerousness. New York State is the only state that does not allow a judge the discretion to do that. And that's why you've seen criminals emboldened You've seen people released multiple times, re-offending. Re um, one of the uh, courts in my uh, Senate district had 15 criminal cases that were supposed to be uh, there in one night uh, a couple of weeks ago. 15 people that were supposed to appear uh, with their appearance tickets for criminal violations. Zero of the 15 people showed up. Uh, and this is happening all across the state. Uh, in fact, there, there can't even be a bench warrant issued for someone until the third time that they do that. So what we're, what we're saying to criminals is there's no consequences. That's why you've seen, you know, shoplifting, smashing grabs, carjackings, uh, assaults, robberies, up dramatic numbers. In some cases, uh, we haven't seen this since the 1970s. And my colleagues try to say, well, you just, you can't prove that that's based on bail reform. Well, the people of New York State are smarter than that. This has all happened since bail reform was instituted. So... Uh, I, and I think that's this is why the governor is, is, is starting to push this 10 point plan, uh, because she knows that this is a political problem for her, uh, because the beginning of the budget process, she, she said, I have no intention of making changes to bail reform. We're going to wait for the data, the data, by the way, that they do not want to collect and analyze. They've actually squelched the uh, efforts to actually collect and, and produce empirical data because they don't want to know the answers. But New York State, uh, New York City, rather, New York NYPD collects the data, analyzes it monthly, and the numbers are staggering, the increases that they've seen. And guys like Eric Adams, uh, you know, a fellow Democrat who's pleaded for them to make changes. Uh, you know, Buffalo's Mayor Byron Brown, same thing. This is, this is not a Republican versus Democrat. This is a 
tail wags the dog, uh, special interest uh, from the most radical special interests based in New York City. The people who truly believe that no one should be in jail ever for anything. Those are the people that are setting the agenda right now. And she knows that that's a problem. So are you seeing frustrations from the Democratic side as well for, for either of you in this whole process? Well, absolutely, because you have a lot of people, particularly on Long Island, that uh, realize that this is not going to be good for them in the fall. Uh, you have a lot of common sense uh, mem upstate members uh, in the Democratic Party that realize that this is not uh, this is not the type, type of governance that that uh, that we should be conducting. So, yeah, there's a lot of frustration, but frustration is one thing. The question is, how do you vote? And every time we've introduced amendments to repeal bail reform, which is that which is what we should do. We should have a clean repeal, start over, because it's a clear and present danger to every single citizen in New York State. Every single time we've presented those amendments, every single Democrat has voted no, every time. So even though they are concerned, even though that they, they see the, the common sense, you know, kitchen table issue that this is, they aren't willing to vote that way. And that's really the, the problem. And we're seeing that as well in the assembly. Uh, the assembly is split. You have uh, a large contingency out of New York City that is uh, very radical, that opposes uh, any bail. Uh, you have some of the more moderate Democrats, uh, particularly in the suburban areas, who are recognizing the huge increase in crime and are very frustrated by the repeated stories to people who are out without any bail, committing more crimes while they're uh, awaiting uh, their trial. So the caucus in the assembly, the Democrat caucus in the assembly is very split on this issue. I would point out that uh, Senator Burrell and I have uh, introduced legislation to address the legitimate concerns that were in the original bill about people uh, being uh, stuck in jail because they were unable to post a bail uh, due to their financial situation. We've introduced legislation to address that issue while restoring judicial discretion and allowing judges to consider how dangerous an individual is. I was pleased that the governor's proposal did pick up one of the recommendations that Senator Brell and I had in our legislation to restore more judicial discretion and allow uh, judges to uh, consider the dangerousness. There's a fundamental lack of trust amongst some of the more liberal Democrat legislators uh, regarding both police and judges there's this fundamental belief that police are racist and that judges cannot be trusted to exercise reasonable discretion. And, and that's a very unfortunate perspective and it, it's driving a lot of this debate. Okay, Jack, I have to apologize. I have to, I have to hop back into conference. We're going to be debating bills here shortly. Uh, I'll be debating bills. Uh, and uh, I just want to say again, thank you very much. And and uh, Dan Heidsenreiter and everybody in the chamber, thank you for all that you're doing. I'm really sorry that we have to hop off like this, uh, but um, you know we're, we're, we're here doing the best we can. Thanks for your time. Take care, everybody. I'll speak on your behalf, George. Oh, God. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everybody. Thank you. So, Andy, this is up to you. I, I, I have faith that you can get through it, but... Um, We'll see if, if you're having trouble, let us know and we'll uh, we'll bring up Dan. But talk about the gas tax proposal that that's part of this project. Uh, what does that mean for motorists and, and residents around here? Right. So of the three bills that uh, have passed uh, last night uh, with real strong bipartisan support, we passed what's called the revenue bill. 
And this year, the irony is the revenue bill actually had a lot of tax cuts, including uh, cutting the gas tax. And so there's two components to that gas tax cut. The net effect is that the state will be cutting um, gas taxes by 16 cents a gallon starting in June. So we're going to move on to questions from the audience. Uh, we have about five or six of those. What are the financial impacts of having the Bill Stadium in our region? And why is building a new stadium so important? Well, there's a lot of financial impacts to the Bill Stadium. Uh, obviously, we collect income tax from the players, everyone who works there. You have sales tax. And of course, you have the economic ramifications in the, around the community in terms of uh, restaurants, hotels, uh, and the hospitality industry in general. So that's an important component. There's also an intangible component, which is the community pride, the recognition, uh, having a nationally uh, ranked football team. And that has intangible ramifications in terms of uh, you know, people making decisions on where they wanna locate and where they wanna develop. Uh, as you know, the proposal uh, facing the state is a $600 million investment. Uh, that's a one-time capital investment. Then there's the continued maintenance because the stadium itself would be owned by the state. Uh, so that would be a continuing obligation. To put this in perspective, uh, the state helps in other areas as well. So this year's budget, for example, has a $420 million annual tax credit to help the film industry to encourage them to make films in New York rather than make films in, in Hollywood or in other states. Same type of economic analysis. There's a lot of screenwriters, a lot of actors, a lot of uh, spinoff from that. We also support our uh, theater groups uh, by the, to the tune of about 200 million. Now those expenses are actually annual expenses. So supporting a bill stadium is relatively small in comparison, but all of them involve a financial analysis at some level in terms of the number of jobs that you anticipate the amount of sales tax and the amount of income tax. Has the Bills Stadium been one of the stumbling blocks in this budget? There was some discontent from a number of downstate lawmakers on, on pushing this through. Has that been part of the, of the delay? Absolutely. Um, and um, just as, by the way, the upstate colleagues of mine, uh, Republican and Democrat, have routinely criticized the $420 million subsidy to the Hollywood film ministry that's in the budget every year. Uh, and it's always been defended by the New York City legislators. Those New York City legislators are now criticizing the Buffalo Bills investment. Uh, a good argument could be made that our state would be a lot better off if we just simply cut our um, taxes by you know five or 10 billion and eliminate all these special uh, tax gimmicks, if you will, that help certain industries over other industries. And from a philosophical perspective, I just think we'd be an awful lot better if we dropped our tax rate across the board rather than having government try to pick winners and losers. That's not where we're at right now. And so, you know, I'm supporting the Buffalo Bill Stadium. I remind my downstate legislators that they always want us to support their projects too. What are your thoughts on minimum wage, uh, the increase, pertaining to the child care subsidy levels? So uh, the state 
we have not gotten the final budget bills yet dealing with child care, um, but it is projected that the state will dramatically increase funding for child care. Um, as you know, we've expanded uh, from kindergarten to pre-K. Uh, as we expanded pre-K, those were the kids that generally used less staff than, say, infants. Uh, the infants and very young toddlers are very staff intensive. So uh, right now, the funding, you know, the salaries for a lot of our infant and pre-toddler uh, uh, daycare staff is quite low. But because the staffing ratios are quite high, the cost is quite high. So in Chautauqua County, you're looking as much as $10,000 to $15,000 per child. So there's a strong push from an equitable perspective to increase that uh, base wage, but that of course then dramatically also increases the cost of childcare. So the state budget is looking to add about 700 million for childcare, but it's a huge conundrum uh, because if the child workers' salaries are increased to the level that some people suggest, um, that 700 million will hardly uh, be enough. So we know there are plans in the works to expand the sewer system surrounding Chautauqua Lake. Are there other critical infrastructure needs in this county? And how can we work to get these items included in the planning process? Right, um, so the, the expansion of the sewer system is a great idea and it's, uh, it's really gonna have a positive impact on Chautauqua Lake. That expansion is funded through our environmental bond program and our environmental investments. Separate and distinct from that, the largest single area of infrastructure development, of course, is our roads and bridges. Chautauqua County has one of the highest number of bridges in the, in the state because of our hilly terrain. Um, we did see an uh, increase in CHIPS funding and uh, winter recovery. That's incredibly important. The problem that we're wrestling with this year is we've also seen a huge increase in the cost of asphaltic oil, diesel fuel, and the cost of uh, maintaining our roads. Uh, we continually push for an increase in funding for our highways and bridges. We got about a $100 million increase in this year's budget that's gonna go through, uh, but that's a, that's a continuous challenge. The water projects, the sewer projects, those are well, reasonably well-funded uh, through our environmental programs. So many businesses, in this county and across the state, we're still working to recover from unprecedented losses and rising costs due to the pandemic. Do you expect any additional COVID relief measures to come out of Albany this year? Uh, yes, the revenue bill that we just enacted has a number of uh, programs designed to help businesses in particular. Um, so, um, I'll just mention there's a small business tax relief a program. Um, we have uh, tax credits for farmers that we hope will help offset the uh, likely increase in um, overtime. We have tax exemptions for small business COVID-19 related expenses. Uh, that's a credit equal to 50% of qualifying costs up to 50,000. That was just approved last night. Um, we have tax credits for uh, um, the uh, New York Youth Job Program. Um, we have an Empire State 
apprentice tax credit for those businesses that are involved in that type of work. Um, so we have, yeah, we have a childcare business tax credit, which is going to be helpful. Um, we have the restaurant return to work credit. We have an Empire State child credit uh, as well. So those are some of the credits that were just enacted last night that will be helpful for businesses. Here's a question from a homeowner on Lake Erie. It was directed for Senator Borello. I don't know if you can answer it. Uh, they would want to hear how you are going to support Governor Hochul's proposal for eliminating PFAs in food packaging by December and other changes by December 2024. What will you do to help Western New York with this problem and how can you help avoid making this a political football for which nothing is done? Yeah, the regulation of PFAs um, is uh, being addressed in separate legislation that's outside the scope of the budget. Um, and it's always a balancing act between costs, availability of other alternatives, the environmental footprint of other alternatives, and, uh, and making sure that the, the program that we use to address that is actually feasible and, and reasonable to implement. But that's in separate legislation. Those details are being uh, discussed outside the scope of the budget. Restaurants are trying to get business back to normal. They face double digit inflation and New York has, has them raising labor costs 10% every year. This year, they had to stop using foam and plastic bags. Now that they can no longer use foam, they use plastic for takeout, which is costing more. Why does this state have to be one of the first to suffer while we wait for other areas to do the same? Yeah. Uh, and so, unfortunately, the restaurant industry, particularly as it deals with uh, styrofoam and plastic, is the brunt of um, value signaling when it comes to the environment. And what I mean by that is that uh, you'll have a high profile legislation such as uh, proposals to eliminate straws or the proposal that went through that eliminates styrofoam. It has in, in a virtually no measurable impact of any kind on the actual environment. And then when you start looking a little bit deeper, you realize that some of those initiatives actually have a negative environmental impact. They sound good on their face, but when you do the analysis, it doesn't make sense. And so if you eliminate styrofoam, uh, for example, and you go to cardboard takeout, which many restaurants have, the cardboard itself involves, you know, the destruction of trees. They grind it all up, massive amounts of water, massive amounts of uh, high-level BOD uh, runoff. I mean, the environmental ramifications of the alternatives are sometimes worse than the change that's being proposed. Every time this type of legislation comes up, Senator Brawl and I always do more than a surface analysis. And we say, what is the long-term environmental uh, impact? And for all of us, we want a cleaner environment, but we don't want feel-good legislation that really hurts the environment. And I'll just mention one other thing. It's outside the scope of the restaurants, but the governor's bill uh, had a requirement that all school buses be all electric in a couple of years. Well. The cost of an electric school bus is about $200,000 a piece, more than a state-of-the-art diesel uh, school bus with a diesel engine made in Chautauqua County. And for most of our county, the electricity comes from a coal plant in Pennsylvania. So 
So here we have a proposal to triple the cost of buses so we could drive coal-powered buses in Chautauqua County rather than state-of-the-art uh, compressed natural gas diesel engines that have virtually no emissions. I mean, from an environmental perspective, from a financial perspective, it's insane, but it sounds good. And so that's the kind of analysis that we're always wrestling with. What do you think of the potential for revenue and economic impact from the legalization of cannabis? Um, I think the revenue impact at best will be neutral because what you're seeing is that the revenue that is projected to be generated from cannabis sales or recreational sales is offset by the increased costs on the enforcement uh, and the regulatory side. And those who promote recreational marijuana say that um, this will eliminate the black market. Well, of course, those people have absolutely no clue how business works, apparently, because if you have two products that you can buy in the street, one which is taxed at a huge amount with high regulatory costs that costs you a third to 50% more than the other product, which is identical, only people who have zero business sense will think that you'll put out the lower cost product and the high cost product will be the one selected by consumers. I mean, I don't know what business school they went to, but it surely wasn't uh, anything that I've ever seen. So every state that's legalized marijuana has seen an explosion in the black market. And then New York State, as part of the legalization, also eliminate all this, the penal law restrictions that would uh, discourage the black market. So they made it legal to have a large quantity of marijuana with you. Uh, they reduced the, the criminal sanctions. And, and they impose high taxes on the legal one and expect it to go forward. Every state that's legalized uh, recreational marijuana has seen a dramatic increase in uh, car accidents and car fatalities. Uh, there's just no way around it. And you're going to see it here in New York State as well. So overall, I'm not a, I used to say I'm not high on legalization. Uh, the, the costs, in my opinion, far outweigh the benefits. This region seems to have a workforce that is lacking in manufacturing skills. What programs are in place to mitigate this? Uh, very uh, fortunate, I think. Uh, Jamestown Community College has seen that great need. And uh, with the president, uh, DeMarc has moved aggressively to try to address that. The Chamber of Commerce is also working in that area, as you know, with their manufacturing center. The schools are working to address that with some of the STEM programs. And so um, absolutely critical that we try to address that. When you look at the number of jobs that are vacant in Chautauqua County, a lot of them are high quality, high paying manufacturing jobs. They're not the old uh, dirty jobs that we know from the World War II era. These are high tech jobs, pay decent salaries. And I'm very thankful that JCC uh, the business development uh, group and the, the chamber, uh, along with the Manufacturing Association, are making great strides in that area. Is there legislation being proposed regarding regulation of Bitcoin mining to protect New York State's lakes? Uh, I'm not quite sure what the connection is between Bitcoin mining and New York lakes. 
Uh, Bitcoin mining does require large amounts of electricity. Um, those electric generating plants have to meet all the uh, DEC's criteria, including their speedies permits, which is their uh, discharge permits. Uh, so I anticipate that you know you may see more electrical generation for Bitcoin mining, but New York State is so hostile in terms of uh, any uh, electrical generation, as we've seen with the closure of NRT, that I don't think you're going to see a significant number of uh, uh, plants opening. There is some occurring near Ithaca area. Um, where they're operating an existing power plant specifically for that purpose. The bigger problem that we have, to be honest with you, is that um, the ISO, the independent service operators that coordinate the entire grid, is projecting that we will not meet reliability standards in downstate area starting in two years, just won't meet the, the, the reliability standards. And so they are predicting uh, brownouts or blackouts in downstate. And that's because they closed the um, Indian Point power plant, which was uh, two uh, gigawatts. The new environmental regulations that are applying to natural gas peaking units will reduce those capacities by another gigawatt. And they have not put in the replacement power. And so, you know, I wouldn't the, the Bitcoin mining is very small in New York State. I think it only involves maybe one or two plants. The big, big issue is that we're not going to be meeting electrical reliability requirements for downstate as a result of our energy policies. Well, well let's stay on that topic because we've heard a lot about that and the state aggressive plan uh, to have a green energy system by 2040. Um, just what are we doing to keep power coming here. You mentioned Homer City. Well, Homer City's cutting back from what I understand. So, I mean, how how precious is the power that's coming here right now? And in Western New York is traditionally paying more for power than other regions in the state. Yeah, so um, there's an absolute complete disconnect between power generation, power distribution, and what the state legislature is pushing from an energy perspective. So uh, the state legislature wants to have, you know, zero emission vehicles starting in, I think, 2035. Um, in order to go with all electric vehicles, the grid would have to add about 72 terawatts of power generation and distribution. To put that in perspective, the current total usage of the entire grid is around 54 terawatts. So you would have to more than double the amount of power being generated and distributed just for cars. New York City has gone further and required that all buildings starting in a few years be all electric. So at the same time that New York City is losing about three and a half gigawatts of power, they're dramatically increasing the demand. And if you were to, I mean, <laughs> If this state were run by people who were engineers or had any electrical knowledge, we would be engaged in a massive build-out of our distribution system and generating system right now to meet exactly what they're demanding. And instead, this state has been openly hostile to any new energy development and new energy generation. 
it's just a complete disconnect, Jack, between what the state is demanding and what the state is preventing. And so the state has blocked, uh, I think, two or three natural gas pipelines to supply more natural gas. They turned down applications for two or three um, new generating stations that were state-of-the-art natural gas with very, very low emissions. They blocked um, the running of a hydroelectric line from Quebec down to New York City to replace the nuclear power. They're shutting down the nuclear power plant that produces zero emissions, and they're demanding that we more than double the, the usage. I mean, it just doesn't make sense, Jack. And at some point, and I suspect it's going to be sooner than later, you're going to see brownouts in the New York City area. At that point, they, of course, will blame the utility, although the utility can't do anything about it because the utility can't even buy the power anymore. So I think we're going to go through a rough time before people figure out that if you want a higher demand for electricity and you want to keep prices low, you have to address supply and demand. And that means you have to increase the availability of natural gas to keep the price lower. You have to go with natural gas uh, turbines because you need peaking power that can ramp up and down quickly. And you've got to move forward with your base load or you will have black nights. Not just the night being black, I mean your house being black. And when you talk about renewable energy, I think it's interesting to note that the state has said hydropower is not that. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Jack. Unless, of course, it's produced in a foreign country and then we can import it from Canada. The powers that be have told us that COVID is coming back. What is being done to prevent authoritarian measures being taken against our children, such as masking for them and their teachers? Yeah, very serious issue. Um, as you know, we saw over the last couple of years an extraordinary use and abuse of executive power. Um, the legislature originally authorized Governor Cuomo to ex exercise more executive power in the context of the uh, COVID-19 emergency. In my opinion, he grossly abused that power and went way beyond his statutory authority. Senator Brell and I introduced legislation specifically to curb that authority and put in some more checks and balances that legislation didn't go forward, but the state legislature did eliminate that emergency authority, that extra emergency authority. In the meantime, uh, you have the health department moving forward to enact regulations that go, in my opinion, way behind beyond their statutory authority. Uh, in particular, uh, the current health law provides that you can direct somebody to go into quarantine or isolation if they are afflicted, that's the phrase used in the law, afflicted with a disease. The health department uh, regulations that are coming out of the state health department would enable them to utilize law enforcement personnel to put people in isolation if they were exposed, even though they were disease-free, which is way beyond their statutory authority. The current statute provides for due process and says you can't put somebody in isolation or quarantine without, without an opportunity for a hearing before a magistrate. The proposal regulations eliminate all that due process. Because of those uh, constitutional and statutory overreach by DOH, uh, several of my colleagues have joined in a lawsuit against uh, those proposed regulations. 
and I anticipate, and I've been working directly with that lawyer as well, uh, because it's just excess of power, uh, usurping the legislative power and going way beyond what their statutory authority is. So the challenge always is to balance public health with personal liberties and due process. And the current law does that by allowing the health department to quarantine or isolate someone who's afflicted with due process controls in place to protect person and their privacy interests. The new regulations throw out all the due process and it go way beyond the statutory authority. And so we're trying to get it back to more reasonable checks and balances. Chautauqua County is a low income county with a large population of low income families with limited out housing opportunities here. Low income people and others with jobs that used to be considered middle class are in crisis since rents have become completely unaffordable. How can your leadership bring additional funding for affordable housing projects to this county under the affordable housing reform bill? Right. Um, so um, the state budget proposal that passed the one house, we've not yet seen it in the final budget, but uh, that included about $8.5 billion for housing, uh, low-income housing. Uh, you may know that uh, I served for 20 years as a chairman of CODE, which was a not-for-profit housing rehabilitation corporation. Um, we renovated a lot of homes in the Jamestown area, and we also put in some low-income uh, housing unit. The problem that you have is a combination of factors. In 2019, the legislature, over my objections, uh, enacted what was called the Tenant Security and Protection Act. And what it did, among other things, is it made it extraordinarily slow and time-consuming for a landlord to evict a tenant. It limited the security deposit to one month, but it took the eviction process and made it three months long, which means that a landlord uh, who was evicting a tenant would automatically lose money. So what landlords did, as you would expect, if you were a businessman or had any economic background, the landlords did is they increased the underwriting standards of the people they rented to, meaning they, they required higher credit scores, more employment background, and a stronger um, likelihood you will always pay your rent. And that excluded the, uh, a lot of the working poor or those with poor employment records. The second thing they did is they raised the rent. They had to raise the rent to cover the losses that they were facing because they couldn't get someone who was not paying out sooner. And then on top of that, we put in a two-year eviction moratorium. And unlike the federal government, there were no protections to landlords. The federal eviction moratorium required a a tenant to be making partial payments and restricted it to low-income tenants. New York didn't have any of those protections. As a result, we had landlords, many landlords that went two years without rent. As a result of that, landlords have been fleeing the market. Uh, we've had a hot, sorry, we've had a hot uh, real estate market. So landlords, instead of renting, are selling their apartments into the real estate market. This is causing a housing shortage all across New York State. Uh, that housing shortage, of course, with the law of supply and demand, means that rents are going up. So New York's misguided process has resulted in a housing shortage on the rental market. That's driving up rents. 
We made it more expensive for landlords to rent to low and moderate income uh, residents. We've increased the risk and that's resulted in higher rents as well. So, you know, again, they started out and said, oh, isn't this great? We'll limit the security deposit and we'll make it longer for the landlords uh, to evict somebody. No, that's not great. It actually results in a horrific negative impact on low-income tenants because the landlords, in order to stay in business, are forced to raise rent. The solution is simple. Well, sort of. The solution is encourage more moderate to low-income housing, make it more profitable for landlords to get into the business. That increases the supply. That increases competition. Everyone in this room knows that if you have an increase in supply and increase in competition, you get better products and a lower price. That concept has been driving the U.S. economy for 250 years. It is not yet a concept that's been accepted by my majority members from New York City. But maybe at some point, economics will come forward and we can address this issue in a thoughtful way that results in better quality apartments for a lower rent for our low and moderate income workers. In the meantime, the state is forced to invest billions, eight and a half billion in the budget to address public housing and address that situation. On the flip side, meaning that everyone who's paying for their own home can now pay taxes, higher taxes, to subsidize the misguided policy of the state legislature. Other than that, I support what they've been doing. As businesses struggle to hire, are there any strategic initiatives the county or state is considering to help attract candidates to the area? And what is being done to keep graduates from high school and college to stay in New York? Um, two great questions. And, and then uh, I'm getting phone calls saying, how come I'm not on this budget briefing since I'm the floor leader? <laughs> and they expect me to know what's going on. Um, so a couple of perspectives. First, if we want our best and brightest in Chautauqua County to stay here in Chautauqua County, the job training and education needs to be tailored to jobs that are available in Chautauqua County. So we, for a long time, have uh, pushed the great benefits of having a bachelor's degree or a college degree. And we take our best and brightest. We uh, spend a lot of money. We get them, uh, help them get college degrees for jobs that don't exist in Chautauqua County. So Senator Brello, as you know, when he first became county executive, met with our major employers and said, what do you need? Uh, what kind of job openings are there? And that's the type of analysis we need to follow uh, and focus our job training and our job employment and our educational efforts to the jobs that are here. And we have high quality jobs that require, you know, college degrees in engineering and high tech manufacturing and sales and, you know, law, law, accounting. We have those. But if we want our people to stay here, we also need to put more of a focus on, um, on the high tech manufacturing and uh, STEM and those those areas. So Andy, what's your timetable? Are you good for 10 minutes or do you need to go? No, uh, they started a uh, legislative briefing on the next budget bill about 10 minutes ago and they're calling me, asking me where the hell I am. All right. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> Jack, I really got to jump or they'll wonder if I'm still alive. 
No, that's great. I, I think uh, and it'll be a mixed blessing, by the way. Some will be cheering and some will be upset. Well, I think uh, everyone in this room appreciates your time and, and your efforts. Uh, and and uh, we hope you get some sleep in the coming days. But uh, thanks for joining us today. It's been fantastic. And good luck the rest of the way in Albany. Well, thank you very much, Jack. And uh, really, really, sincerely, wish I were there today. <laughs> thank you, Andy. So uh, even though uh, they were with us for 50 minutes, uh, I think we got to most of the questions. Uh, I think you got more insight today than you're going to get from from uh, from most media, with the exception of the newspapers. So, um, you know, I mean, this was a really unprecedented, unprecedented day for us. I mean, for us to usually have these two here, um, it's fantastic. And, and it's your, your chance to, to meet with them. This is um, this is what we deal with in, in government. This is what we deal with with the. Uh, with uh, local municipalities all the time with the unknowns of what's going on in Albany. And we've seen it today really in person from our two state representatives. And, and the funny thing is they chose April 8th thinking that everything would be just fine on April 1st. So the uncertainty comes out of nowhere. So uh, Dan, would you like to take it from here? Thank you everyone, appreciate it. And uh, have a great rest of the day and I'll turn it over to Dan.